Hello there, I'm Lewis Herbert and I was leader of the council until 18 months ago and we're here today to talk about a subject that's dear to the heart of many people in Cambridge and particularly to two people who've joined me in the studio and that's the planning system. We are a city with major challenges, I call it a city of considerable magic but it's, it's been one of the fastest growing cities. It's a city with a great inheritance of environment but it's also one where we've had a very rapid growth in affordable and other housing, but also in the number of jobs in the area. This is the first of two programmes because we're going to, in the second, look in particular at the Greater Cambridge Local Plan, which is one of the reasons why we're here. We're also here because, and I think our guests will cover some of that, that the planning is struggling for various reasons. In the studio, I've got Peter Studdart, who was previously in charge of planning for the City Council until 2004 and then he's had other roles and in the last 10 years he's been on design review panels, he's advised the government in their look at planning better buildings, more beautiful design and development and he's shortly going to be off to the wonderful magical kingdom of Bhutan to help share some advice there but, but we're looking today more at Cambridge's problems Second, I'm really glad that Councillor Sam Davis has been able to join us, the independent councillor for Queen Edith, who topped the poll by half a mile in May 2021 and has made planning a major theme of her work and contribution. And she leads for the Green and Independence on the City Council's Planning and Scrutiny Committee. And in between time, she's uh, been undertaking an MSc in Sustainable urbanism and urban planning at University College London so and she helped create the Queen Edis Community Forum so I know that uh, planning is a big issue for Sam and also for the ward that you represent. Maybe we could start with Peter and give us a view Peter about what is the state of planning um, in the context of Cambridge uh, what, what, what isn't working so well what should good planning look like and maybe some of the ways that planning system could be improved uh, just a small yeah, question well, Peter yeah, no, well, <laughs> yes. no, well thanks Lewis no, I think it's fair to say that the planning system is has been I think quite badly challenged and run down over the, particularly over the last 12 years on a number of different fronts um, and has made planning as an activity in England, I think, a lot more um, complicated, um, a lot less effective. I think probably the most important change, the most damaging change, I think, since um, 2010, 2011, was the abolition of any kind of regional planning and any kind of strategic planning. Um, so that planning since the Localism Act in 2011 has had to cope with this huge chasm between national planning policy and uh, local policy within individual local authorities and uh, city and district councils. So this kind of crucial cement, which regional policy and 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 indeed county structure plans that were around when I was uh, um, in charge of planning in the city council has been removed. And I think that's made it a lot more difficult for my successors to bring forward a kind of coherent strategy and and it's made it more complicated i think for the community to understand exactly what's going on effectively there peter a gulf between national government which has continued to tinker they made lots of changes yep. and then relatively isolated uh, communities and different local plans well yes i think it's this it's, it's also this question of fragmentation and um 
I mean, in fact, if you live in, I think if you live in South Cams, you've got about six layers now of planning activity, none of which is actually that effective. I mean, you've got, I mean, starting from the top, you've got the Oxcam Arc, which is still a kind of twitching corpse. You know, we thought it was all dead, but it seems to be coming back to life. It's like not a some... Norwegian parrot yet. <laughs> That's right. But it's still there. And it, that could theoretically have provided some uh, strategic regional overview, but it all it went off. I think, on the wrong tack by being very much about, you know, with some very frightening numbers about housing and economic growth. Uh, obviously, we've now got the combined authority, which I think is, you know, pretty pointless for me. I think that Cambridgeshire and Peterborough is not a sensible planning unit. Um, it's too small to be really effective on a strategic level, but too big to be local. You've still got the county council. That's the third level, still actually the highway authority. Then you've got the Greater Cambridge Partnership, obviously, as a result of the city deal uh, between the city, South Cams, and, and the business and, and university interests. And then you've got the local authority. And then, of course, in South Cams, you've got your parishes. And so you've got all these different layers. And it's a kind of an interesting question is who's in charge, actually? If you compare it with, uh, with, a, with a European city, like in France, when you say to a city, well, who's in charge? Oh, well, it's the mayor. You know, we know who's, a char- who's in charge of this city. It's the mayor. And in Cambridge, it's actually quite difficult to know who's actually in charge of making the big decisions. It's all a bit of a, a mess. And I think that this fragmentation carries on into all the other agencies that are necessary to corral, if you like, in order to develop a, a coherent planning policy. I mean, like, for instance, public transport uh, um, uh, um, providers, which are all fragmented into privatised industries, Um, utilities, water, and all the other things that are necessary to make a city work. Again, in in a European context, a lot of these will actually be run by the local authorities. And then coupled with that, you've got the financial challenges that local authorities have. I mean, we, we still have one of the most centralised forms of, of local government funding. Our local government really have to always go cap in hand to central government for their funding. So residents don't see any particular benefits from growth other than they see the downsides, they don't necessarily see the upsides. Um, and I think planning departments have suffered particularly. I think the research that's been done looking at the extent to which local authority services have been run down over the last 10 years, planning departments have taken the worst hit. I think they've been down something like 47% in their funding in real terms. So altogether, it's amazing that anything is still working, actually, to be honest. And I you know, I pay huge tribute to my successors in the local authorities, those that are sticking, sticking it out and trying to make it work. But it does make life difficult. And I think that communities have an understandable concern about whether it's really serving their interests. Do you think that the union of Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire has achieved as much as it can, or is it that the overall system is a is a big drag? No, I, well, I think it should go further. I think it's. I think there should be unitary. I think you should abolish the county. I think that the city and South Cam should merge into a unitary. I think for me, the three relevant tiers of, of local government are, are at a regional level, where you've got a, a level big enough to, to deal with the big issues about environment, um, you know, green infrastructure, water, probably even things like health, social care as well at a regional level. Then you need to have a proper um, unitary authorities. Um, and I think for city, for Cambridge, that would be a, a, com- a combination of the city in South Cams, maybe a chunk of East Cams as well. So you've got a proper sub-regional authority that would have a population of about 300,000. You know, it's a good size for, for a city. With a mayor, I'd put a mayor in the city. I wouldn't put a mayor at regional level. I'd put a mayor at a city. And then I think you need strong neighbourhoods. You need to empower parish councils and you need to empower urban neighbourhoods within the city with similar powers to parishes. So a lot of the things that are happening at a local level can just be left to local people to make decisions about so you've summed up a lot there. I mean, we've we've got a national gap, we've got underfunding, 
um, and we just don't have that thread of yeah, working otherwise together. Otherwise, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, switching across to Sam, you, you represent a community that really cares about um, uh, its area and has impacted because it's it's near Addenbrooke's and the biomedical campus, uh, and it's a it's a it's got a major roads rushing through it and um, a lot of pressure for intensification. So. A community perspective, your perspective, what, what, how do you see the planning system and how do your residents see it? I don't think they see it as something that they can trust and I don't see, think they see it as something that works in their interests. And I think those factors are probably due to the fact that the, the planning system is working under the kind of pressures that, that Peter's described and also because the structures of things like pre-application hearings, which developers can revert to repeatedly to try and get an application through, whereas the same privilege of discussing with officers what's possible is not available to residents. Similarly, when an application's been decided on and a set of conditions are agreed and then the conditions get eroded over time uh, without that necessarily being apparent or where conditions are agreed but simply flouted and there isn't sufficient resource in the compliance function to to enable that to be dealt with. I've come across all of those in the last uh, two years and the collective impact of that is really corrosive on public trust and Whether people understand the extent to which planning affects their lives or not, um, they can certainly identify the the damage that's done when a development goes up without community space or without active travel, so everybody's dependent on their cars, or when a much-loved feature of their local place is demolished Um, You know, we can all look around our environments and identify schemes which don't make sense. We don't understand how we got what we got or why we're supposed to think that it's in any way an improvement on what went before. Um, And, you know, I suppose it's quite easy to to sort of mutter and go, well, residents just underinformed and they don't they don't get it. But There's a 50-year history of reports trying to aid public participation in the planning process. Um, 1969, a thing called the Skeffington Report, which looked specifically at this topic, you know, and and set itself some really ambitious targets. It, It summed it up as we want the paper of the plans to come to life and to come to life in a way that people want. And yet in 2018, the Town and Country Planning Association um, commissioned the Rainsford Report, which talked about a sense of systematic unfairness and how um, the the asymmetry in resources between communities and developers and the, the problems that the planning system had in balancing those meant that that communities felt kind of serially disadvantaged by what was going on. And also, interestingly, a report published in 2019 by Grosvenor, you know, major national um, developer, which said that 
trust in the planning system is almost non-existent. And and this is a direct quote. When it comes to planning for large-scale development, just 2% of the public trust developers and only 7% trust local authorities. So I don't think it's um, specific to Cambridge. It's certainly not specific to my neighbourhood. I think what we see in Cambridge, though, is because of the rate of growth that you alluded to earlier, it feels incessant. And so a kind of systems problem is compounded by a volume problem. So back to you, Peter. In terms of the local authorities' role, I mean, we do have a very high level of growth. Uh, Planning seems distant to quite a lot of residents. Sometimes they might get involved in it for the first time in 10 years. Um, And there are quite a lot of cards that the government has given developers. Um, What what can the local authority do? What what, what is a better route to kind of engage the uh, community and and sort of enable people to have more access to the system? I know that there's various routes were tried in the city. Yes, I mean... There are various routes, and and there's a lot of focus at the moment, for instance, on on the use of digital technology to make it easier for people to understand what's going on and for them to influence processes as well. But then that has its own inbuilt issues because not everyone is digitally savvy either. And the key part of the process is really the local plan. And historically, local plans have have had to fit within a a regional structure. So a lot of the kind of big decisions, strategic decisions, have been made about what the purpose of the... Cambridge local plan is as opposed to the East Cambridgeshire local plan, for instance, the different roles of the, that they would play. Um, but since 2011, the, each local authority has had to rather go, go its own way and been given a lot of arbitrary figures as to what sort of growth it should be trying to accommodate without any real help as to how it should do that. I think within the local plan, I mean, so I think we've been lucky in Cambridge, I think, because a lot of big decisions were made back in 2000 and 2003 in the county structure plan, the 2006 local plan that made the big changes to the green belt. And I, I mean, obviously I was responsible for a lot of that work. And so I've got to say it's good, haven't I? Um, Possibly. So things like, you know, the, the, the developments have now appeared around Trumpeton, Great Knighton and, and Trumpeton Meadows. One can criticise some aspects of it, but generally I think that they're by, in terms of a conventional urban extension done through conventional negotiation with volume house builders, countryside on, on, on Great Knighton and Glebe Farm and uh, Groveners and Barretts on on uh, Trumpeton Meadows, the quality is pretty pretty damn good, and people come to Cambridge to actually look at that and see how it's done. We've got we got the schools built in, the public transport went in first with the with the guided bus, and so a lot of the things that people talk about you know, that, that haven't been done actually on that development is a good example of where it was done. Similarly, I think Eddington. I mean, Eddington's a bit of a one-off. Obviously, it's a university-sponsored development, but again, I think very, very high standards of development. Not to everyone's taste in terms of architecture. It's a bit bleak, possibly at the moment, but I think it will mature into a very, very good neighbourhood. And that had the advantage of starting at the centre. One of the problems with commercial developments is that they tend to start from the edges and work back to the last thing that happens is the supermarket arrives, like the supermarket arrived at Great Night and last Thursday. At last, you know, you've got a Number Sainsbury's. Number two Sainsbury's. And whereas, whereas at, at, um, at Eddington, it was the Sainsbury's that actually yeah. happened there first, which was which was obviously terrific from the point of view of, of the, 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 the having facilities there. And it's now beginning to grow with a hotel or the decent coffee shop and the things that people want. But obviously, the university is a very special case. They're building, they're, they're, they're the owners, they're the, they continue to own the land, manage the land. A lot, a lot of it's going to be for their people, 50% uh, key worker housing for university needs. 
And again, they've, they put a lot of effort into thinking about the environmental impact of that development with its, um, uh, particularly in relation to the waste disposal system, the water retention, district heating maybe Not hasn't been zero. such a good decision, but, you know, they've made a lot of good decisions. They've appointed some absolutely terrific architects. And so, you know, I think f- that's, a, a, again, is a very good emerging model of good practice. But, I mean, there are other places that are not so good. I mean, particularly Camborne, I think, has always always struggled because it didn't have the infrastructure to make it work. It was never really a sensible place to build. And, of course, it's now growing bigger and bigger. So one's ending up with this kind of suburban or ex-urban sprawl along the south side of the A428, which will only really get sorted once once the guided bus gets put in and once, ideally, East-West Rail comes past there as well. And it gets turned into a town, which is what it you know, should have been to start off with. So, so uh, but, but if you take Queen Edith, and I'll bring Sam in... Um, the planning department is dealing with hundreds of applications, a huge volume, understaffed often, mm-hmm. uh, as you said, under-resourced. What about the broader swathe of intensification applications and smaller ones? Because yeah. if, you, if you looked at, say, an annual city council planning committee, and there's more of the development now is outside of the city in terms yeah. of the bigger ones, yeah. how, how could local authorities do better and engage the community on just on on all of those kind of applications or yeah, is it I mean, is it just because it seems it yeah. seems like it's sort of there's a huge wave of applications coming through and they come fairly erratically through the system yes i think i mean i think looking positively so, yeah, one positive thing that the government is doing at the moment is that through the changes to national policy that are coming through there's encouragement for local authorities to to get in early and set design standards, working with local residents. In in and I think places like um, Queen Edith would be a, a good example where that could happen, where one would d- develop a d- what's called a design code in a technical language of quite detailed rules as to what sort of um, scale, what sort of height, what sort of form new development ought to take in a place like Queen Edith. And I think probably, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what Sam's view about this, but I think if one was actually asking residents in Queen Edith, you know, particularly the southern part of Queen Edith, was largely large, large detached houses, you know, any, any, any development that comes up, oh, well, we want to keep it the same. We want large detached houses. What we don't want is, you know, like the development that's just finishing on the corner of Long Road, well, opposite sort of um, Hills Road on the corner by the Long Road traffic lights, where there was a big hoo-ha about quite a hand some old house that was on the corner there, hidden behind ivy and overgrown trees. I know the residents were getting very concerned about. That's now been redeveloped by pretty intensive um, <coughs> apartment building. Um, looks quite nicely designed from what I can see, but I mean, it'd be interesting to see what the impact of that actually was and whether people's shock and horror about what was being proposed is actually carried through when it's actually occupied in, and, and, and in place. And Because and, quite often residents, I, I mean, I know several schemes where People say, "Well, actually, you know, did we really complain about that?" I mean, like King's College development along Barton Road, there was absolute blue murder about that scheme. You know, terrible. But actually, you look at it; it's a terrific scheme designed mm. by really top architects, pretty well designed to passive house standards, you know, absolute model student housing development, and I think it really adds to the character of Barton Road. But my goodness, the row that was about that scheme, and you know, Queen's College are obviously going to be suffering a similar issue in relation to Arsenal Croft. But uh, I don't know where that one's going to end. But um, you know, so it's. it's Local residents aren't always right, I suppose. Is is is, is, is I guess what would be my po- point. But they need to be they need to be brought into the discussion and treated like grown ups, and so that they and they need to understand the pressures as well. And that if you don't allow some intensification, 
okay, what do you want? More chunks out of the green belt? More housing beyond the green belt? What do you want? And so there are these difficult tra- trade-offs that planning authorities have got to make. And I think some intensification, I think, is, is, is right, but it has to be done in the right way and ideally bringing residents or most residents along with you. <laughs> well, there's plenty to chew there on, Sam. So, so come back on that, but also see, say a bit about what, what the council could do, because clearly there's a there's a, such a range of these different applications and uh, uh, it, it, there's a, a need to distinguish between the mix and out of them there may be a few pearls but there are also a few swine to use a phrase. Peter's answer was quite dense. Um, there are a few uh, bones I will try and pick out of it. Um, one of the things that most influences people, I think, in where they choose to live is a sense of place. So when I moved to the southern end of Queen Edith 24 years ago now, the thing I really liked about it was its connection with the countryside on the edge of the city. And because of the development that's happening at the biomedical campus and also urban fringe developments on the edge of Queen Edith's, that is changing. We're not being uh, afforded sort of compensatory measures in the form of additional improved rights of way out to the countryside. Uh, So on that level alone, I think there's a sense of loss and there's a beautiful word, solastalgia. I don't know if you've come across it, Peter. Not just permeability, but solastalgia. So, solastalgia means a, a, an emotional sense of loss and grief about a place that you know which has changed. And obviously places will change. But if you feel it's being done without consent or to come back to that word I used earlier, unfairly, then, of course, people's resistance is going to intensify. And so if I look at what's going on in Queen Edith's, we have the expansion of the biomedical campus, which is kind of the driver then for everything that happens in planning and transport in in our area. The decisions around the creation of the biomedical campus, the sort of additions to to the Addenbrooke's site uh, and the Rosie as it originally was, uh, were first published, to the best of my knowledge, in a document which came out in 1999, which was the year after we moved into our house, uh, which was a thing called the Addenbrooke's 2020 Vision. Having had the benefit of of living there over this extended period and and watching things evolve, I find it fascinating The one of the justifications which is provided in the um, Addenbrooke's, oh, sorry, the the 2050 vision for CBC, which was published last year, is to rectify the mistakes that were made in the delivery of the 2020 vision. And those mistakes are things that impact on the quality of life of my residents every day. Um, and I, I won't go into the detail of how that plays out because uh, I don't want to, to sort of dominate the conversation. But but I think, you know, uh, the starting point is surely a respect for people's connection with 
where they live. And if they feel that they're not even being afforded that and that some other justification about efficiency or productivity or uh, gross value added or somebody else's return is the driver of what's happening and that the planning gain that could be expected by way of even affordable housing doesn't come through, then that's very problematic for them. And the the case you mentioned um, of the flats on the corner of Queen Edith's Way and, and Hills Road, part of the problem about that was the aesthetics, you know, the loss of the old house and the kind of sense of, of change that went with it. Part of it was about um, the biodiversity and the tree cover that's lost because that site is now much more intensively built out than it was. Uh, part of it was because we all recognised that it was going to be impossible for the developer to build to the footprint that they wanted without the impact of the construction process spilling out mm. into the neighbourhood. And we've had endless problems with pavement parking and obstruction and noise and all the rest of it. But partly it's because the developers found a way round the delivery of affordable housing that should have come forward with the development of that scale. So, you know, it's very easy to just say, oh, look at Queen Edith, posh people sitting in large houses, they're all right, Jack. But actually, I think that's um, not doing justice to the whole kind of complexity of reasons why people find this change unwelcome and not fair. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I, I accept a lot of those points. And I think particularly this point about affordable housing, which is, I think, so important for Cambridge that, Vital. that these developments do contribute to affordable housing. Um, and but, but I think that in these discussions, the sort of missing party are the, the people who, who, are, who, who don't yet live in the area and who are moving into that house. And, and obviously with affordable housing, it's also the people on the housing waiting list. And so... And certainly, you know, the absence of affordable housing is is is, is undoubtedly uh, an issue in relation to that development, although it's obviously a modest modest scale. Um, but it, it seems to me that, that 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 nevertheless there has to be some way. I mean, certainly the local authority needs to be well enough resourced to ensure that the detail is enforced and that the development delivers what it promises, uh, which I think is, is one of the kind of fundamental issues that is still around. I think your earlier point about con- the problem of conditions and, and developments being eroded from their initial design to what you actually see on site. Things like cons- construction, yeah, I mean, those are tricky issues. And obviously, you can't build a new development in a tight site without having some impact on the wider area. But again, that ought to be managed by conditions, which will then ought to also be enforced. Uh, and I know that I mean, coming back to the Alstall Croft issue with with um, in 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 Newnham, that with Queen's College, that the, you know, that whatever happens to that development, the construction is going to be a nightmare. But that's not necessarily going to stand up as a reason for refusal. Um, so, so that I mean, I guess that's the other issue is that is that the local authority has to work within the constraints of what they can what they can refuse and what they can insist on, if you like, and. They can insist on a construction management plan, but they can't refuse the development because, oh, the neighbours are going to be a bit upset because there's going to be a bit of noise and disruption in the local area while it's being built. Well, we're going to come back on those issues of 
community engagement and also about that issue of sense of place. You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and we have in the studio Peter Studdart, who uh, was previously a joint planning director and uh, also a head of planning at the City Council, who's done a lot of work um, on uh, improving the planning system since then, and Sam Davis, who's uh, the uh, independent councillor for Queen Edith, who's got equally strong views on the planning. We're going to have a look now at, at that whole issue of dig a bit further into sense of place and about what actually successful uh, development, but also community engagement. Start with start with you, Sam. Perhaps getting coming uh, developing some of the points that we were just on. Yeah. So I I um, very much enjoyed listening to to Peter's comments about um, successful places as he sees them and as the planning profession recognises them. Um, and contrast that with, I think, what is sometimes quite a sceptical take on how what we're building is effectively cookie-cutter housing. So Accordia, yes, won a lot of prizes. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it was so successful, as far as I understand it, is that it respected the place it was being built, it left the mature trees, it worked around the site. If you contrast that with, say, some of the new build in Trumpington or indeed Eddington or um Nine Wells in my own ward and the uh, developments that are just coming through on Wart's Causeway. They all feel like watered down versions of the Accordia ideal. And I know we're supposed to refer to this now as New Cambridge vernacular. I have a feeling that New Cambridge vernacular looks an awful lot like new London vernacular, new Manchester vernacular, new Norwich vernacular, name your location, because actually what's driving that is nothing specific about this place. It's about building materials and building processes that enable you to maximise your return. So that I would be interested in in Peter's views on. Um, secondly, I think probably what he, his comments flag up for me is a... A problem with how far the planning regime goes. So you create the space, but then you have to animate it. You have to make it a living community. And you referred to Camborne and how that didn't work very well because the infrastructure wasn't there to give people something to embed into. Um, But I think we're repeating that. I I don't think the planning regime has enough powers or enough teeth to really deliver what we need to make these communities happy, healthy places. And I think the development industry um, uses a lot of buzz phrases, which are then reflected in, in planning materials. So sustainable development, high quality public realm, sense of place, healthy communities, environmental enhancement. But if you walk around some of these new volume developments, it's quite a stretch to see how they've fulfilled those promises. Um, And that that dissonance between what we're told we're going to get 
on what we actually see delivered on the ground is is very unsettling for people. And, and to come back to this issue of trust, I think that's, you know, that's one of the big factors. We we haven't touched on CB1 yet, the, the station regeneration project. But, you know, if you look at the original promises made there about the um, transport infra- uh, interchange, about um, the fact there was going to be a medical practice and there was going to be storage space for the county archives. And all of those bits got eaten away. Um, and I gather that the last two buildings that went up, buildings three and uh, three and four station square, don't even have any affordable housing um, generated by them. So as i said planning is a is a process for weighing um different interests and trying to arrive at an, an optimized outcome i don't think people see that's what's happening on the ground at the moment so so peter the you mentioned uh there's some opportunities with the somewhat delayed but coming along the track changes in planning and design codes locally um is is that one of the roots? Um, a kind of look, uh, rather than in an urban environment, neighbourhood plans are fairly marginal. Um, uh, is, is there a way within the resources that the city might be able to put together where there could be a, a focus and a, a higher aspiration? Well, <clears throat> well, I mean, potentially. I mean, what the government is proposing is that local plans should include what has been called a design code for its whole area. And the early pilot work that's being done on that, when it's being done across the whole city, whole town, is all about identifying different character areas and then within those different character areas setting down pretty precise uh, parameters for any new developments that are then coming on within those neighbourhoods. I'm not totally convinced about this. I think it's going to be very difficult in a in the kind of complex world of of an English city, right, as opposed you don't to think Cambridge as opposed to doing do it in Austin, Texas, or somewhere. Yeah, I mean parameter plans. I mean, I I've spent quite a lot of time in working in Chelmsford, and parameter plans have actually upped the game. Uh, when when you won a Beacon Planning Award, Chelmsford oh, yeah, yeah. won one at I mean, the same time. But would you do that on an existing neighbourhood? I mean, obviously within within the new neighbourhoods, within Great Knighton, within Trumps and Meadows, you know, we, there was the outline. The, the process we followed was an out was well. First of all, the allocation of the sites, taking out of the green belt. Then there was uh, um, an area action plan produced to set out the main objectives of what was happening, where the schools were going to go, where the access was going to go. Then the, the, the landowner stroke developer came in with an outline plan application, which was a real crunch where you had to negotiate the Section 106 agreement and there'd be an illustrative master plan. But then you, and having followed all that, if that all went through, you'd then, you know, that process takes several years, give or take a public inquiry like at K Farm, where we had to. Uh, protect you can, the you can argue that, rightly, that you've achieved a lot. Well, um, yeah, but I, I mean, think the, the Farm, where countryside were trying to get out of their affordable housing requirement yeah. in 2009, and we took them to appeal and we won, and so that's why we got 40 percent rather than 16.5 percent, which is what they offered after saying yeah. after the financial crisis that's all they can afford. And we said, "Sod that, we'll take you." Well, they they appealed against non-determination, and we had a two-week public inquiry. Fortunately, under a Labour government, John Denham, bless him, Secretary of State, and he said, "No, bugger you! You've got yeah. to do. It. You've said you bought the site." I mean, very some very interesting issues about viability in that inquiry that were out in the public realm. 
Um, and, and so we fought very hard for 40% affordable housing in in, in uh, Great Knight and, and Clay Farm, helped by Grosvenor's, who, who during the middle of the inquiry, Grosvenor's, they signed up on the dotted line to 40% on Trumpeton Meadows. So I was able to wave that to the inspector and say, well, look, they've done it over the road. Why can't Countryside do it here? And of course, Countryside won't. They, they, they still managed to make a pot of money out of that site anyway. Yeah. And so did the Pemberton Family Trust, who uh, walked away with £59 million on selling the land. But is it now more difficult for local authorities to actually achieve? So Wurtz Causeway, quite a lot of yeah, house building, um, a number of other uh, sites, including those intensification sites. There's, there, there doesn't When the developer puts their proposal down on the table... It's it's a like put and shove. It's a it's yeah. well, uh, there's there I isn't mean, much opportunity yeah. at yeah. that stage. Well, I mean, the, the, the government this you know, over the last ten years, it's made it a lot more difficult for local authorities to sort of negotiate um, affordable housing in, in the way that we were previous to that and of course also the, the government has changed the affordable the definition of affordable housing so a lot of it that's, that's coming through actually isn't affordable anyway so what you and i would 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 would, would think as being affordable housing which is social rented housing uh, has really gone mm. to a very a very low percentage which is an absolute disgrace um so so that it's made that whole process more difficult but i think coming back to this question of design and character i mean the design coding idea could potentially i mean the the aim is for um, new development to be much more in sympathy with what local residents want and, and that have those rules put down in advance. I think that's going to be incredibly labour-intensive to do that. And I think possibly one will find that when developments actually come along, they may find it very difficult to actually comply with the sort of uh, rules that are being set down. But one, one will see. But just coming back to Sam's point about the, the distinctiveness and, and, uh, and obviously Accordia was a great success. I mean, we were... We, we were huge. We had, we had a huge amount of opposition from local residents to Accordia. Um, one particular guy on uh, Clarendon Road wrote in. Was I think we, at the end of the process, Peter Carter, who was the case officer, was a terrific guy, really good development control officer. Um, he counted up seventy-two pages in small font of objections that that, that people had raised. Now, I think some of those objections probably led to some improvements to the scheme. Challenge uh, does a lot have of it an was, impact. But a lot of it was in principle, and a lot of it was about the design. And and but we had to fight the highway engineers to get the narrowness of the mews. We had to fight the street lighting engineers to get to be allowed to put the street lights up on the walls of buildings in some of the mews early on. So a lot of hard work went in fighting bureaucracy as well as trying to placate and understand local you know, what were the genuine local concerns and things like the footpath. I mean, now at last, I mean, we've got that bridge over in the top corner, which helps. Um, and I think Accorda is a very distinctive place. And I think it has set a very high standard when we were negotiating Great Night and we were able to point to it. So well, that's, that's, that's the sort of thing we want. And OK, I mean, I coined the phrase, I, I coined the phrase Accordia light. That was the sort of st style. And I think there is a criticism of that. But I think actually a lot of the stuff that's gone up on in Great Night, and I think also down at Nine Wells as well, I think is very distinctive in its own way. And in some ways, I'm not totally against cookie cutter if it's the right sort of cookie cutter. I mean, heavens, a Georgian townhouse is a cookie cutter. You know, mm. any Georgian neighbourhood, whether it's in, you know, wherever it is, looks pretty well the same. But no, no one says, oh, God, this is very boring because it's actually distinctive. It's the Georgian, Georgian neighbourhood of your town. And so it's a question of having good cookie cutters and, and, and adapting the cookie cutter to some extent to local materials and obviously and local circumstances, which is quite right. And also bringing in good architects who can also then interpret styles and also interpret sustainability. You know, we don't need chimneys anymore, or maybe we might in order to provide some sort of ventilation, but we certainly don't need them to belch smoke. So that 
so that there's no particular need of putting kind of plastic chimneys on the top of, 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 of houses just to make people feel that they fit in. You know, you put a solar panel on top, you know, because that's actually what we want to celebrate is the solar panel and the sustainability. That Let's make an architectural feature of that that people will then ultimately recognise and, and celebrate. And I think that's how you get distinctiveness. And I think that there are no easy shortcuts. You've got to have skilled local authority um, urban designers who can negotiate with developers. You've got to, I mean, I spent my last 10 years doing a lot of work on design review. I chaired the design review panel for the Olympic site on the London Legacy Development Corporation. And okay, that's a kind of expert panel, which is, you know, it's not a community panel, it's an expert panel. And, uh, but it is a kind of peer review process where, where one is able to secure higher standards and quite often the best moment in the design review panel is when a panel is saying something quite critical and quite ambitious and you see the architect smiling because you can see that that's backing up an argument he's having with his client and, and he's very pleased that or she that, they, that they, the panel is, is, is actually supporting what they're trying to do and obviously within Cambridge we've got the quality review panel for growth uh, which was something that was established uh, when I was at Horizons. That's still going strong. So all these things kind of add to the environment that says this is a place that actually does demand high-quality standards. And I think in a lot of the new neighbourhoods, we've actually got it. Obviously, there are other places where it's fallen it's fallen down. I mean, one would point to the mark as being a very good example of a complete disaster. Every time I go past it, you know, I think, my God, you know, and I know that has that's its own long, complicated planning saga around that building. But so, you know, we don't get it right the whole time. But I think there's a lot of places in Cambridge where we do get it right. And I think there's a lot to celebrate. Well, there's definitely a few carbuncles as well as some things to be proud of. Now, I can see uh, Sam's got a few things to say. Um, I mean, can we just try and look at how... Because what is difficult within, say, a planning service is allocating resource. So how can that resource and how can the look both at the aspiration of better but also of, of, of getting the community involved? Because... The, the, there are processes here as well as um, ambitions of, 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 of uh, and, and your point about it, having a say from the public which recognises the environment they live in and love and then transfers some of the quality into the pressure cooker that is developers trying to make as much money sometimes as they can. Um, how, how, how can the local authority be more on the side of their community? as well as to challenge or take up some of Peter's points there. Well, first of all, I'd just like to reassure Peter that I am not in favour of plastic chimneys. So <laughs> we, can, we can all agree on that one. Um, but, but I think what you're raising about resource, um, Lewis, is actually even more complicated than what you just suggested because um, Peter's explained very eloquently and I'm very familiar with the resource constraints on officers. Um but if you think about the problems in marshalling resident resources to engage in this kind of activity, they are significant. Um, one of the techniques which has been practised uh, much more widely in South Cams than in the city is taking advantage of a, a thing called neighbourhood planning. Now, the reason that I think that has, has worked much better in South Cams is because they can hang it off a parish structure, which we so simply don't have an equivalent to in the city. So there's of the order of 20 uh, completed or, or in-process neighbourhood plans in South Camps um, and one that's underway in the city. 
neighbourhood plans should be a means for providing residents with some degree of comfort that they can uh, influence what's important to them. I have suggested in the past to various people in Quinidis that, you know, maybe we should look at trying to embark on that process ourselves. Um, I've also suggested we might want to to set up as an urban parish, which is a thing which is possible. But um, I struggle to find people who are willing to commit years of their life to making that happen. So whatever the resource constraints on officers, those are at least as significant for ordinary members of the public who are then, you know, effectively embarking on a a major piece of work to do the job properly because you wouldn't go into it unless you wanted to do it properly. That's that's the first thing I wanted to say. Um, I do think there are potentially huge gains to be made from involving residents from the outset. And um, I know this is not quite the the same area of activity, but um, in France, there's a National Infrastructure Commission, which has now done um, really thorough public consultation on, on, I think, on about 65 projects. It was uh, documented in the, the TCPA journal a couple of years ago. And they looked at outcomes and of, you know, maybe 40 of those 60 projects, everyone agreed that full public participation had actually delivered better outcomes. So I do believe there is a gain to the developers who, after all, want a quality product that they can sell um, to residents and to officers by everybody working together. In terms of mechanisms, for me, I think there should be a really determined effort to educate the public about how they can get involved, about um, what they can expect from the process. Uh, you know, I, I sure, Lewis, this is the same for you, but you, you talk to residents who have a, an application close to them and they don't understand why the planning process can't give them what they want and councillors and officers spend an awful lot of time trying to explain that and demystify it and frankly I'd love to see you know a much longer and more detailed set of programs on for example Cambridge 105 really explaining the process from the inside out in a way that we're not going to be able to to touch on on these couple of shows well I think we could we can certainly add that which would be yeah to run through a challenging uh, planning application and development but on a kind of uh, unplanned basis because within both your ward and mine uh, half of the developments that come forward are they might be on a possibly piece of allocated land, but but there's no pre-warning about when it suddenly comes up and there isn't any design approach to it. It's just a random um, application. It might be an old garage site. It might be a former a BT office or whatever. So they're relatively random. But I think where I think the... Um, where neighbourhoods or wards could have a bigger role is just to actually review the known bigger sites that are expected to come forward as part of a local plan in a five-year period and where 
where there is an engagement. I think my only issue with neighbourhood plans is to some extent you start with uh, a blank piece of canvas and just the planning system doesn't quite start that way because it, you've already got allocations within the local plan of some of those sites. So so how how do you combine both rightly getting people involved and developing a picture of, say, Queen Edith's with the fact that there's already an expectation that this land have got this piece of site and there's the biomedical campus has got this um, proposal. So so two things. One is I think um, it's not just small applications in the neighbourhood that creep up on people. So for example, if you read the 2018 local plan, the Swiss laundry site on Cherry Hinton Road... The ever-evolving Swiss laundry is, site. ...is yeah. slated for 33 houses. And yeah. in a city where we have a acute housing need, that made sense, I think. And lo and behold, what's being built there is no housing at all, but more lab space, more office space. So rather than building housing to catch up with the employment space that's already being created and the jobs that have been created, we're actually intensifying the difference. Now, I don't understand the process by which an allocation that was laid out in the local plan for housing magically turns into employment space. And maybe you can explain that to me, Lewis. Um, Perhaps in a future programme, because we've got about five <laughs> minutes left. Uh, but, but you're right that there, there are sudden leaps within the planning system at times where, on balance, the re reuse of buildings or the, a different configuration of a site can make a one-off. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's an important, it's an important point because it's, it's this feature which is in, good in some ways but bad in others about the discretionary nature of the UK planning system, and that's you know, the term that's used. Mm -hmm. And, and with, within planning policy, uh, the, the basis of it, that, that decisions have been made in accordance with the development plan unless material considerations dictate otherwise, or whatever the precise wording is. And, and there are words like optimising, you know, in policy, optimising the, the, the development of a site. Obviously, there's all the discussions about viability and all these sort of very kind of quite contentious words that become the subject of endless wrangling between planning officers, developers and local communities. And and policy changes. I mean, there is a, this kind of lab hysteria, certainly at the moment. I mean, this terrible development that seems to be coming forward on the Beehive site, which is just mind-boggling in mm. its scale. And I'm frankly amazed that anyone's even contemplating that as a serious proposition. Um, but that's putting you know huge lab blocks, which will be the size of CB1, basically in a two-story, just around the corner from here where we're sitting, quite a street, you know, in a two-story Victorian neighbourhood. So Suddenly, people who are uh, challenging that development have got an ally in Peter Scudder. Absolutely. I mean, okay. Well, I mean, I've been along to both. I mean, and again, I think that's a good example of, 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 you know, of Sam's complaint about the sort of PR nature of a lot of pre-application consultation by developers, is that the, the two, the two pre-application consultations that that developer did didn't really indicate exactly what was going on. They were saying, oh, well, it was basically... In effectively inviting residents to choose the colour of the lipstick that was going to be applied yeah. to the gorilla. No one was really prepared to talk about the gorilla. They didn't even want to talk about the multi-storey car park that's in the middle at the heart of that scheme, for instance. And so, yeah, I, I, that's really why where I think a lot of planning is 
is is um, discredited. And and I think on an important site like that, where there's been a huge amount of work done by all sorts of people, from including architecture students, others on on how you could redevelop the Beehive site in an interesting it, low. It you know, has mixed to be better. Way. I mean, the fantastic opportunities. So that would be you know, if the local authorities only had the resources to get ahead of the game and put in a proper framework for that site. You know, it would be a terrifically exciting site, but not to be developed yeah. as it's being proposed. So that moment. is one that is. Uh potential fail but then how does the planning system deal with that well okay that's yeah. and I'll, I'll you'll ask comments sam and then i'll just do a bit of a conclusion ahead of linking into the program we're going to build up this onto uh, just after the may elections sam well interesting timing because my final comment would be about how we've all scrupulously avoided talking about this as a political issue we've talked about it as a technocratic issue and a process issue um I'm really interested in how it is that the city has grown by 40% in 20 years and that's never been an electoral issue. And obviously I don't have your kind of long history here, Lewis, and uh, maybe you can explain why that's never been an electoral issue. But for me, that you know, if, if next the next programme in this series is looking at the local plan how people make their views heard in a framework which is all about, you know, either incredibly superficial lip service to to motherhood and apple pie or ploughing through thousands of pages of consultants' um, rhetoric. You you would assume that somewhere in the middle of that, there's there's a kind of party political dimension to this. And yet, to the best of my recollection, that's never really been anything that has opened up any space between the political parties in Cambridge. So maybe we can park that one for next time. Well, and we will come on to the local plans, because in a way, that is the opportunity to try and bring some logic um, uh, challenging too. Uh, if it's a long process, residents can be burnt off out of that process as well. Um, but it, the local plan, as Peter mentioned, the 2006 local plan, the next one didn't arrive finally until 2018, um, which shows you how much time they take. Showed how good the 2006 local plan was. It was well, it, 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 yeah, <laughs> it, 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 the the. Uh, sub- subsequent uh, plans build on the others. So, so, um, so I, I hope you, you're still with us. Uh, you've enjoyed this dialogue. I think um, the planning system's by far uh, uh, from perfect. It is a uh, system which you've got different rights. You've, you've got the motivation of, of developers putting things forward. Um, and you've got the need for the public to get their say, assisted by their councillors, but also by the planners taking back and looking hard at developments. Is this as good as we can get for a particular site? And in the next programme, we'll be looking at the process of local plans, which has been the only real way that the community can strongly say, what is the level of growth? How are we going to achieve net zero? A big issue of transport, which was picked up by a a significant number of comments um, when we raised that we were coming into the studio. Next time, we will be looking at actually trying to put some logic into it for the community's benefit so that it isn't just maverick development. And we'll be continuing that thread. We've covered a lot, but one stage 
towards then looking at, at trying to bring some order to this. So we'll come back to your challenge and you'll be in the studio with us again, thank you, um, for a programme that will go out just after the May elections. And that will then say, well, what, what is the shape for the next 20 years? We've seen what's happened in the last 20. And we will also look at the issues of affordable housing for our children in the city, as well as the quality building on the fact that we have a lovely city to enjoy. So thank you, Peter, and thank you, Sam. Um, we will be back for a further discussion and we'll continue to take questions from people um, and seek to bind those into the dialogue that we have. Cambridge Challenges was presented by Councillor Lewis Herbert. His guests were Planning Advisor Peter Studdart and Queen Edith's Councillor Sam Davis, MBE. You can listen to the programme again on our website at cambridge105.co.uk.